This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, I'm your host, David Rothkopf. Welcome to Deep State Radio. I'm joined, as is always the case, on Thursday afternoons, uh, which is when we tape this, with... Um, Ryan Goodman of Just Security and NYU Law School. Hi, Ryan. Hey, David. And we have someone who has been a contributor to Just Security and uh, uh, is author of among the most timely books you could pick up to read right now, uh, Frank Bowman, who is a professor of law at the University of Missouri Law School and has written a book called High Crimes and Misdemeanors, A History of Impeachment for the Age of Trump. Uh, welcome, Frank. Nice to be here. Uh, you are, you're not in an undisclosed location. As we're taping this, you are hiding in, uh, hiding in a back corridor of the, the Congress. Is that, is that correct? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually, yes, hiding in a corridor of Longworth, uh, one of the House office buildings. <laughs> that was the first office. But when I worked on the Hill, that was the law that my, my congressman's offices were in Longworth. So I'm very familiar. Um, uh, well, thanks for taking the time to join us, uh, Frank. Obviously, we've invited Frank to join us because uh, we have gone from uh, pre-impeachment hearings and uh, speculation about impeachment, debate about impeachment, to actually having had this week impeachment hearings uh, in the House of Representatives in the Judiciary Committee chaired by Jerry Nadler. And uh, we opened up with uh, four um, uh, legal uh, scholars, or three legal scholars, and uh, well, never mind. I'm going to save. <laughs> I'm going to save my editorializing for later, um, and uh, and 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 begin to frame the issue uh, of impeachment. Uh, uh, Frank, as somebody who has written and studied uh, impeachment, um, where where do you think this particular set of uh, allegations of crime fit uh, versus past impeachments? Well, first, I suppose we should begin. Uh, I will begin by criticizing your choice of words. <laughs> okay. In the sense of, well, that's, that's, uh, a way, that's a way to ingratiate yourself with the host. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, when you talk about allegations of crime, I think it's really important uh, for people to understand that uh, proof of crime in the sense of an indictable offense in a court uh, is not required for impeachment. Um, that's a really basic point, one that was debated to some extent yesterday in the hearings, but um, it's very important to know. Of course, the Constitution says that uh, the president, the vice president, and all other civil officers are impeachable uh, upon proof of uh, treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And that phrase, particularly the high crimes and misdemeanors, suggests to the average intelligent person that you have to prove that some, prove some kind of crime was committed. But of course, that's not true. High crimes and misdemeanors does not mean what we tend to think it means. It's a term of art that really was derived from English practice, parliamentary practice, and uh, it doesn't mean crime at all. Uh, some crimes can be can be high crimes and misdemeanors and can be impeachable. 
Uh, some crimes may not rise to that level, but certainly lots of things uh, an, an officer might do that are not criminal uh, are impeachable under the high crimes and misdemeanors category. So that's a, a place with which to begin. Okay. Well, I'm glad we've cleared that up. Crimes, you know, <laughs> might not be crimes, but they but they they could be high crimes. Um, and uh, you know, I, you're right to correct, and I think uh, we do want to get into this from the perspective of history. But first, let me go to Ryan, uh, who has been following these things very closely, and we've been talking about them every week for many, many weeks now. Uh, what did you think of the first round of hearings in the Judiciary Committee? Um, so I thought the first round of hearings served a good purpose. I thought that um, three the three experts were <laughs> um, very solid uh, in different ways. Um, I thought, uh, so Noah Feldman is a former classmate of mine back in law school, and we've been uh, friendly ever since, um, and I thought he was marvelous, absolutely brilliant. Um, I thought his introductory remarks off the page, the oral remarks where he did many of them, uh, many, much of what he said was without notes, uh, it seemed, um, was brilliant. Uh, I thought just in terms of the narrative style, the storytelling of the founders, uh, which was both learned and at the same time geared towards our media environment, I just thought, and I, and I, I don't <laughs> engage in that sort of praise generally, but um, that was something really special. And I, I just like that's an exemplar for students and uh, others who want to testify before Congress on anything, essentially, but in terms of such a um, serious, solemn moment for the country. And um, and then I thought that one of the things about Pamela Carlin that I thought was very effective is that she described some of the same things we've been talking about for a while, but with different language. And I thought that that was quite powerful um, in the way in which she gave the example of the governor who turns to the president and asks for... Um, uh, some kind of like I think hurricane or aid, and then the president says, "Well, only as long as you um, help me brand my political opponent as a criminal." And that's the. And I thought that was also interesting. It's about the branding um, of somebody as a criminal. Uh, uh, let me throw in parenthetically that I think it's particularly resonant since you know, within about twenty-four hour period of that, the Attorney General of the United States stood up and said something to the effect of, "You know, police departments that don't." say things that we like may not get funded. Hmm. Yep. <laughs> um, and, um, and, 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 and then uh, we can talk quite a bit about uh, Jonathan Turley, and I think having Frank in the discussion would be very helpful um, in the sense of the 53-page um, written statement that Turley turned in, um, because it would be good to interrogate some of that which is more to kind of a deeper level than the back and forth. And um, and I don't know if we need to go into uh, Turley's deep inconsistencies with how he testified before when it was a different president and he was in favor of impeachment or how he wrote about uh, a, a very low threshold for impeaching um, Obama. I, we don't need it. I don't know if we need to go there and if we just want to treat on the merits, the ideas that he articulated. Um, well, you've already before. gone there. <laughs> But I didn't know if we should. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All but right. I think that I think that could be useful uh, because that's where you know Frank would be good to hear from you about what you thought with respect to Turley's um, conception of. We've already talked about one part of that where he seemed to set the bar at crimes. 
he did it in a, in a in a kind of an interesting way by saying he also acknowledges obviously the consensus view that you don't have to have it be a federal crime to impeach a U.S. official, but all of the three uh, cases of impeaching a president have involved uh, federal crimes, which I thought was a you know that that was the move uh, that he tried to make, and then he went down this page after page description as to whether or not. Um, the conduct that's alleged against President Trump would amount to a federal crime of bribery, of uh, denial of honest services, of campaign finance law. So I thought that was kind of interesting, and it might be useful to go down that path a little bit. Well, let's let's do just that, uh, Frank. Uh, you you uh, did you read the 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 prepared remarks of Turley? I did actually. Yesterday, I spent my day uh, sitting at the PBS Newshour desk doing the color commentary on the. On the hearings, and before that, I, I read, uh, I read quickly um, both the 53-page magnum opus and the somewhat shorter testimony of the other folks. Um, well, what what do you, you know, what do you, what do you, all of it? So, so well, what do you think uh, of Turley's as a historian? Well, I mean, I don't think no, that uh, Branzer pointed out. I mean, I don't think he's he, he was really to some extent uh, sitting on whatever expertise he has at, as, as a constitutional historian, and I suppose he has some. Um, I, 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 two things he said. One, actually on TV, uh, I think you have to give it to him. He's really an effective, he's an effective witness. Uh, he's, you know, he's, he's an old pro at this stuff. He's very smooth, um, and, he's, and he's capable of, of presenting uh, arguments that have oftentimes quite large holes in them, uh, very engagingly. Um, and I think he did that. Um, I think he did a pretty good job of it. But um, when you drill down on what he talked about, I think you know, it, it, it's obviously problematic. And I think he just identified you know, his first move, which was you know, to, to concede as he has to that uh, impeachable offenses need not be criminal, but then do this thing, well, just because the the very small subset of presidential impeachments we have in the past have tended to have involved at least allegations of indictable criminality. Therefore, to impeach president for something other than that would uh, somehow be uh, illegitimate, inappropriate, unsupported by precedent, uh, blah, 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 blah. I mean, he actually even tries to, I, I think what he was trying to say at various points is that because impeachment is really important, um, it ought to have uh, defined uh, characteristics. You ought to be able to know what the standards are in advance and the beauty of criminal laws that it does that for you, um, which are all very well in theory. But, of course, uh, he couldn't deny and really didn't try to deny the, 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 the universally accepted and correct wisdom that impeachment does not require proof of a crime. Um, so he, how much good he accomplished by trying to make this, it really ought to have a crime argument is, is hard to say. I should say, by the way, that in every in, in every significant impeachment, not just American ones, but actually going back into in, into the British history, the accused always makes the argument that it, that it has to involve a crime. That's that's <laughs> invariable. You can you can just count on that. And in every time it comes up, the people who actually would like to impeach the official have to knock it down again. It happened it happened in Andrew Johnson. It happened in Clinton. It happened. Uh, happened in Nixon. So I, I, that part of his his effort, uh, while convincing the people who didn't 
know anything about impeachment, I think, is just wrong. Um, now, I do think, and here's where I think, um, I think Turley, quite inadvertently, did uh, Mr. Trump's opponents a real service. And the service is that I think it's a really bad idea for uh, Democrats to try to frame the Ukraine problem as bribery. It's a huge mistake. Um, and I think uh, Turley's material, uh, written and oral, actually demonstrated the problem. And the problem is that Democrats wanted to use bribery because they got the idea in their heads that somehow or other bribery is simpler to explain the American public than, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors and abuse of power. And I get it because high crimes and misdemeanors is kind of a mystical tool, tool or term, and it doesn't mean what you think it means. Um, and it doesn't have the kind of nice um, parameters and boundaries that, that a crime of bribery does. But the problem with bribery is that, as was amply demonstrated in the hearing, there isn't a good definition of which bribery you're talking about. Because the Constitution is written in 1787, does that mean that the kind of bribery you're talking about is bribery as it would have existed in 1787? And if so, how do you figure that out? Because there was no federal bribery statute at that point. In fact, there wasn't a federal bribery statute for anybody for decades afterwards. So you have to look at English and American common law. And what that meant is actually quite indeterminate. You know, you can find all kinds of sources suggesting that, um, you know, it, it meant something, this thing or that thing. And this is one point, I think, where Mr. Feldman uh, um, uh, over-egged the pudding a little bit in the sense that he tried to claim, and he, you know, really just really firmed up this claim under cross-examination that, you know, that there was a very definitely understood definition of bribery that was, and he almost intimated, that was written into the Constitution. And frankly, this is not true. Um, what, what bribery meant in 1787 is, is heavily debatable. Um, and so if it's not 1787, can you use modern bribery statutes? Well, that's got a problem because, of course, that statute wasn't in, in existence at the time of the framing. Uh, Pamela Carlin tried to make the argument that, well, maybe it's not either of those things. It's not common law bribery. It's not modern statutory bribery. But instead, bribery has a sort of special kind of meaning, embracing corruption more broadly in the impeachment clauses. Um, and it doesn't really matter who's right. The problem is that the Democrats want to drive this thing, some of them want to drive this thing down the bribery lane because they think it's simpler to explain. But it turns out not to be. And worse yet, I think, what happens is uh, that if you put, if you if rely on bribery either exclusively or as a significant uh, driver of your, of, your, of your impeachment articles, what you're doing is you're creating for any wavering senators that there may be uh, a perfectly good excuse to vote not to convict. This is one of the things that happened to Andrew Johnson uh, in 1868, where, uh, as you guys I'm sure know, he was he was impeached uh, for you know, 11 articles of impeachment, nine of them uh, related to his violation of the Tenure of Office Act um, and his firing of Secretary of War Stanton. The problem, which, which the, the, the radical Republicans, the Republican Party that was had been thinking about impeaching him for quite some time, basically over disagreements about the conduct of Reconstruction after the Civil War, 
Uh, and they had been thinking about impeaching him on much broader sort of systemic and constitutional grounds. But then when he violated the Tenure of Office Act, they all looked at each other and said, hey, this is great. Tenure of Office Act is actually criminal. In fact, we wrote it that way. I mean, Turley's right in calling it kind of a trapdoor crime that was written essentially so that Johnson would violate it and they could impeach him for it. Um, but the problem was that the Tenure of Office Act uh, was arguably not even applicable to Stanton for technical reasons, and in any case, uh, was at least arguably unconstitutional. And so at least some of the senators who voted to acquit him may have done so on the ground that the case wasn't proven on legal grounds. So well, this is a long way of saying that I think there's a, there are real risks in trying to frame this thing as bribery. Yeah, well, and I think one, one of the things we want to do here is get to the question of the framing. And, you know, when I think of Turley's comments, I think that he was cherry-picking. You know, he was saying you need to have, you know, a crime because, you know, that existed in the past, although it didn't exist in some of the articles with Andrew Johnson in terms of the, the, the you know, the abuse of Congress parts of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, uh, you know, uh, he said, uh, you know, he pointed out problems with the definition of bribery. And then in that case, he used the modern definition of bribery um, which is, again, sort of cherry-picking, um, but didn't really get into the issue of obstruction of justice, which is absolutely clear law, uh, and which um, it, it seems quite apparent from the questions of Norm Eisen, who was doing the questioning, and from uh, the statements of uh, Chairman Nadler, that that's something they're seriously considering. So in the case of obstruction of justice, you know, there, there is clear law, and 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 Mueller was pretty made a pretty good case of of why it was violated, um, and then of course, you know there are other issues which are are vaguer but clearer in terms of precedent with regard to impeachment. Those relate to the abuse of power, which has come up in each of the impeachments. And I just wonder, Ryan, if 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 we we might find our way to a clearer theory of the case. Mm. That 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 makes the point more compellingly, and and picking up on what Frank has said and what I've just said, I wonder if that isn't um, using the precedent of impeachment more closely, because there you will find abuse of power, uh, there you will find violation of some crimes, there you will find um, uh, uh, the the second of the three potential articles that the, the judiciary is talking about, which is obstruction of Congress, which uh, Nixon was, was, was guilty of in terms of uh, not providing uh, or not responding to congressional requests for documents, et cetera. Um, if, if, if you just stay in the very narrow lane of the three cases of impeachment mm-hmm. before, uh, it's, it seems that the Trump case fits very neatly in that. Or do you have a different view? No, I think I have the same view, which is that we can, uh, as, as Michael Gerhardt basically did it in his opening remarks, graft the Trump conduct onto the Nixon articles of impeachment in particular. Um, um, as David just said, in terms of uh, obstruction of Congress and abuse of power um, in particular, um, they fit so well, and then they're even worse in the case of the Trump situation because uh, his involve very dire national security implications that weren't in the in the 
Nixon uh, case. So I think that that's right. Um, and I also, I mean, I do wonder if we have to try to sort out these technical details at all, um, as long as the there's careful drafting by the Democrats, which we'll see soon. And that could be that the articles of impeachment are written in the alternative as an abuse of power and or bribery, or it gives the it gives um, members of Congress an opportunity to say like abuse of power, including one or more of the following acts, and then one of them is a bribery um, description. And that would work, and that seems to also be a way in which uh, there's an easy path forward, I think, both politically and legally, um, as, as were the articles for Clinton and uh, Nixon in particular, giving those uh, you know, one or more of the following menus, and then uh, folks can sign up to the entire article uh, because they agree with one or more um, of the following. And I think that also gives them the vocabulary to use bribery as well, if that's helpful to can help with the language to conveying it to voters and the American public. So, Frank, what do you think of that? I mean, if, if we're trying to come up with a simple concise case to make to the public, not just to the Senate jurors, would doing it as, as Ryan described it be a good way to do it? Well, if, again, and I think Ryan is correctly pointing out just sort of, there's a couple of tasks and a couple of audiences. The first task that apparently the Judiciary Committee is in the midst of is drafting articles. Um, and why I'm, fo I'm focused a little bit on right now on, on how they draft the articles because uh, how they draft the articles will either constrain or, or um, you know, free uh, people to make arguments to the, the, both the public uh, and, and the Senate. And I agree that the, the model is probably Nixon in terms of drafting, because remember, uh, and I think this is a notable point, although I don't know if it was raised yesterday, uh, Nixon plainly committed bribery under any definition, oh, right, right. undoubtedly. Um, and had him, we have him on tape, you know, saying to John Dean, could we get a million dollars? How much would it take? A million dollars. Oh, we get that. Um, you know, he was plainly trying to bribe, uh, bribe the bribe witnesses, bribe the, the, the Watergate burglars. Um, and yet, the Judiciary Committee, faced with that, and faced with the fact that you know, the constitutional language hadn't changed, still allowed impeachment for bribery. They didn't charge him with bribery. They basically charged him with you know, various violations of his oath of office and, and then put those you know, in a different, two different boxes of obstruction of justice, broadly speaking, abuse of power, broadly speaking, um, and then and, and and did it that way. So I think that's the I think draft from the drafting perspective. I think that's absolutely the right way to do this. Then the question is, um, what's the best way to frame it for the public? Um, and of course, that depends on the question with which you started, which is whether or not this thing is going to be just based on circumstances of Ukraine, or whether you're going to pull try to pull in uh, volume two of the Mueller report on obstruction. Um, and if it's just going to be Ukraine, you know, I really think that the, the proper framing for this is that this is uh, an abuse of power. And, uh, and, and, the, and if you go that direction, there are a couple of points that you've got to keep pounding away at. 
the first is that it, it is impeachable for a president or anyone else to use powers that he uh, is lawfully given by virtue of his office. And I think uh, Pam Carlin, maybe the, the rest of them, made this point quite forcefully and very importantly, because Republicans are prone to say, well, you can't impeach the president for doing something he's entitled to do or using powers he's entitled to, he, that, that the Constitution gives him. And, of course, that's exactly backwards. The whole point of impeachment is, uh, or the principal point of impeachment, is precisely to remove people who use the powers that they're legally given in bad or, or illegitimate ways. So the first thing you have to pound on is, is that, um, that, that it's abuse of power, that he's using powers he's, he's been legitimately given, but using them for illegitimate purposes. Um, and notably for his own personal advantage. And I think the, the witnesses yesterday were, for the Democratic side, were really very effective in, 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 in demonstrating why that's so. The, the thing I think they were a little less effective about, and, and, and one of you guys had mentioned this before, or not they were less effective, but, but I think the importance of it uh, has to be pounded out of a way at is the the even even if you were to a president were to use misuse his powers for uh, personal aggrandizement, that doesn't necessarily automatically make it impeachable. Um, you know, if a president were to use his powers to fix traffic tickets, um, you know, on the White House lawn or grounds, you know, all right, that's an abuse of power. But are we going to impeach him for it? Heck no. There has to be this element of gravity. Where there has to be some powerful explanation of why this is sufficiently important to the republic um, that we have to remove the guy. And and that's where the damage to foreign policy uh, really comes in. And that presents, I think, a bit of a challenge to, to Democrats in that it requires proving or showing the American people, reminding the American people of, you know, why NATO is important, why it matters that Russia is an expansionist power in Europe, why we care that, you know, Europe remains, you know, peaceful and free, um, you know, why it is that alliance structures matter, why it is that, you know, it's important that, that America's word be uh, be good, that America is perceived as not being a, a bully, but is perceived as, you know, uh, an honest broker in, in international relations, da 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 and that, all those are points that I think the American people, the modern American public, has to some extent forgotten. Uh, and, and it's going to be a, an educational process to try to show that this is important for reasons that people have stopped thinking about. Well, you know, I, first of all, I think you're bringing up something which is interesting to me as a foreign policy um, watcher, um, and and that is, this is different from all other impeachments because it's the first one that has a major foreign policy component. Uh, it's the first one that has a major international national security component to it. And, uh, and um, you know, personally, my view, listening to what you're saying, is let's not get too complicated here. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, in some comments this morning, um, said this is not about Ukraine, it's about Russia. All the roads lead to Putin. When it comes to Donald Trump, I think you know Russia is is and and can fairly be characterized as an adversary of the United States, um, and this is about serving the goals of an adversary of the United States. 
But this gets me to something else, Ryan. And 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 I have this feeling, and you and I have been going around on this, but you know, one of the things that I feel like is this is kind of rushed. You know, we're like, got this thing, and then we're going to do this, and it's going to come before the end of the year, and that means it's got to come before Christmas, and so let's write the articles of impeachment now, and then we're going to get it to the Senate, because we don't want it to distract from these things. And yet, you know, when you talk about bribery, you know, then I start th- and, and trying to hush, silence witnesses, you know, I think of Trump's witness intimidation, and I wonder... Have there been other cases of this? And you know, you know, you know, what what role did Trump play in what Roger Stone was convicted of? You know, in terms of witness intimidation, and on and on and on. And we've we've had this discussion about broad impeachment versus narrow impeachment. But 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 I guess for me the question is: Is there a difference between swift justice in this case and hasty? justice in this case, which was a point Turley was making, although for completely different reasons. Right. But it's also kind of there's the uh, irony that Turley was saying that this is going too fast, and then today we have reports that uh, the White House is saying that it needs to happen fast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they just want to get the House over. They want to, like, get to the Senate because, you know, the fix is in. Right, right. Um, So... So my view is that I think we have overwhelming evidence. I thought that the preface of Adam Schiff's, um, the report from Adam Schiff. This is the 300-page. Yeah, the 300-page Intelligence Committee uh, impeachment inquiry report was important in saying the word urgency. So you just do a search for the word urgency at the beginning of it, that this is an urgent matter, um, that that explains as well very strongly a rebuttal to the idea that, oh, just let the public decide in November 2020 whether they think that these actions of the president deserve him being taken out of the office, but taken out of the office through the election um, process. And I just, I, I think that it's right to say that that doesn't work because the particular conduct we're talking about is election interference. It's election interference that's ongoing, uh, C.E.G. Giuliani is currently in Ukraine right now, carrying it out, um, and that's why it has to be done once we have a sufficient body of evidence. And there's a sufficient body of evidence. And I agree, it could always be um, more perfect, but that's, you know, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, especially when uh, this is the situation. Um, and it doesn't preclude, of course, the House continuing to investigate. So if there is other things that they dig up. Um, that could actually kind of, kind of be interesting to put uh, them still in some level of control when it goes to the Senate. So it's not just totally controlled by Mitch McConnell, but maybe they now then get Lev Parnas to testify. Um, that could be interesting. Well, you know, I noticed uh, uh, one observer, I think it was Neil Katchell, actually, um, pointing out that double jeopardy doesn't apply in, in impeachment cases, and that if the Senate went to become a Democratic-controlled Senate, you mm. know, in, in the, in the if following the election, they could go back and do it over again, uh, which was kind of interesting. But, but let me get to the Senate in a different way, um, uh, Frank. And, and that is, you know, you know I, I saw a, a, t- a tweet from David Axelrod, the former top advisor to President Obama, who said, 
let me help you all here. Skip ahead, you know. First, the House is going to impeach him. Then the Senate's not. And then we're going to move on to everything else. This is all going to be over. And I was like, well, okay, that's A, conventional wisdom. B, it's not true. Only two other people have uh, been impeached in American history. The president's going to carry that with him his whole life. Uh, the, the, and inquiries could continue, as Ryan was just saying. So that's, that's another thing. But I don't think we've really thought through the Senate side of this thing very carefully. Um, because I think the general sense is that Mitch McConnell is going to set up a kangaroo court and it's going to be, you know, you know, a bunch of Republican witnesses talking about how the president is, uh, weighs 180 pounds and has a great tennis forehand, you know, that it's not going to have anything to do with these issues and it'll be slam dunk. But if, t- t- Frank, talk based on your experience you know, the Chief Justice of the United States presides over these hearings. How much influence is he likely to have? How much influence does he none. Well, okay. That, well, maybe he has none. But, but, but I, what I want to know is... None. And the, reason, the reason why he has practically none and, and is because he, he's essentially like, a, you know, the, the, the chairman of a faculty committee. He really doesn't have any real power. Um, on every issue, I mean, he can make some provisional rulings on stuff like evidence, uh, relevance of evidence, and that. But he, he doesn't have any power to determine who, who certainly no, no final power to determine what witnesses are called, what witnesses are excluded. He doesn't even have any final power on, over questions of evidence. On every single point, um, any provisional ruling he might make. Um, is ultimately appealable to the majority of the Senate. The Senate decides not only its own rules up front, but decides on on every single every single uh, detail passing through. So uh, you know, I can imagine there would be points at which Roberts could um, exercise some sort of moral suasion uh, on various things, though God knows in which way. Um, but he's not—he's not an independent actor here. The other thing to understand about him, even as a presiding officer, is that he's—he's—he's not only—he's not only the final fit, not the final final word, but he's actually applying rules which, unlike a trial judge in a trial court, are not judicial rules. He's not going to apply the federal rules of evidence because they don't have—they don't apply. He's not going to apply any rules of civil or criminal procedure because they don't apply. The rules he has to apply are actually the rules of the Senate with which he's not going to be terribly familiar. And at least if past precedent you know, suggests anything, what happens in the course of a trial like this is that largely the Chief Justice on procedural questions is going to end up deferring to the parliamentarian, um, who's going to be the actual person who actually knows what the rules are. Um, so I, I wouldn't look for much from the Chief Justice, who in any case, I suspect, institutionally is not going to want to interject his personality or into this incredibly contentious process. He's going to want to be a potted plant. Well, I guess the question in my mind, and let me ask you, Ryan, and then we can follow back up with Frank here, but the question in my mind is, you know, what, um, if, if the House is a foregone conclusion, can we expect uh, in the way of a, or, or what could be a strategy for those who believe the president ought to be impeached and removed within the Senate, 
or is it a lost cause? You know, is there something they can do to drive home the message to the public? Is there something they can do to ensure that certain evidence is brought? Is there something they can do to challenge the case being made by the majority? Or essentially, is this going to be the Mitch McConnell kangaroo court? None of that's possible. So um, I guess I have two thoughts. Uh, they don't fully answer the question. And but they get, but they go there. I think. So number one, <clears throat> just politically, I'd be very curious to know um, how much money is being spent um, on political efforts to educate the public. There are millions of dollars that are being spent and just being reported by groups that are um, pro the president um, in the impeachment process. And if I recall correctly, Frank might remember this at all. David, you might remember uh, with Clinton, there was a lot of money spent um, against the president at the time in favor of impeachment. So is that happening? And is it targeted, for example, towards uh, the Republican senators coming from states where they might be more worried about their reelection chances? Um, that's, that's one, just on the political dimension of it. The second is, I guess my thought has always been that there's a non-trivial chance that something will shift. Um, and that if, as long as the public opinion shifts, then the Republicans will shift, the elected Republicans will shift. That that's what they're, they're all about. It's just a, a market share of votes and for a large percentage of them. And therefore, if there's something significant that happens, like a wild card, uh, the indictment of uh, Rudy Giuliani. And let's imagine it's the indictment, I mean, just a real wild card there, but uh, it's not out of this world. Um, the indictment of Rudy Giuliani for f conduct that overlaps with the president's conduct and therefore is just clearly federal crime like election interference, um, soliciting something of value from a foreign uh, national to help your campaign. So that's a, that's a kind of a wild card. But the other thought is, what is our metric? Is our metric the, convic the uh, conviction and removal of the president in the Senate, or is our metric also an acquittal, but whether or not the acquittal is understood by the public as being illegitimate? And then I think the question of Chief Justice Roberts comes back in because if he pronounces on a, import, a few important measures that you would think are the difference between a kangaroo court and a fair trial, um, and that is overruled by Mitch McConnell's Senate, if that happens two or even one time maybe, but two or three times, then it's a very different animal. And then it does look like Sidney Blumenthal has written about that Mitch McConnell acquitting Trump is like Ford pardoning Nixon, and it's just bad political news for the Republicans. And so an example of that might be, and so Frank, this might be something you could address. Is it the case, I know there's different legal opinions out there on this, that if the House managers want to call John Bolton to testify in the Senate, that Roberts gets to rule on that question, so it's a, it's a very quick uh, procedure to get to where we would otherwise get over a course of months, if not years, to the Supreme Court. Roberts gets to rule on that. Yes, it is true as a formal legal matter, the majority of the senators can overturn a Roberts decision to say that John Bolton is not immune from appearing before the Congress. But that would that's a serious political cost uh, for them. They'd have to justify uh, why they would overrule the Chief Justice on that. Is that, is that how that would play out? We've, we've only got about three, I four, so. I, we, we only have about three, four minutes left. So Frank, why don't you make a response for a minute or two? I've got one last one minute question for Ryan. Okay. Unfortunately, I don't think that's the way it's gonna play out because uh, th th this, 
what's going to happen in the Senate procedurally is going to almost exclusively be determined by negotiations between uh, the majority and the minority in the Senate. They're going to decide in advance uh, by agreement between them, the, the witnesses, the number of witnesses, and probably the, actually the identity of the witnesses are going to permissibly be called. And though in theory, is if we were treating the managers as prosecutors, they'd have lots of discretion to call who they wanted to. I don't think that's going to be the case here. Um, so I, I have a feeling that the opportunity for the sort of uh, you know public relations kind of moment where Justice Roberts does something unexpected is likely to be limited. Um, okay, thank you. That, that's very helpful. You, you, you brought up one thing, Ryan, that I don't want to just sort of leave hanging in the air. It seems like an interesting question to me. There seems to be an investigation into Rudy Giuliani right now. Uh, there's certainly an investigation into Parnas and Fruman right now, right? Um, and there is a parallel related impeachment inquiry. And the question is, to what degree does the timing of one impact the timing of the other? Um, and, you know, I, you know, one, one of the, the reasons that I raise this is, you know, we got into this whole mess in the first place, in part because James Comey and the FBI said, well, there's an election going on and we have to make a ruling very quickly based on what just came out mm -hmm. of Anthony, you know, and, and, and somebody in SDNY is, is sitting there with a pile of evidence and a decision about indicting or not indicting, mm -hmm. and they're going to go, when do I do that? And should I take this other thing into consideration? Meanwhile, you know, up in Maine Justice, you've got the Attorney General of the United States, who is not exactly, you know, playing this with light fingers, you know, <laughs> he, you know and, and, and he might be saying, you, you know, wait, don't, don't do anything that's going to change the color of this. And I'm just wondering how you think that might play out. So I think it, there's so many different ways in which it might play out. And, um, and I do think that it is very important for the public to know now um, what the SDNY knows in a certain sense. So that this is almost like the opposite of the rule that they shouldn't do anything in the certain window of time, three months, let's say, before an election. It's actually critical that we know now um, for the purposes of impeachment. That's the highest order kind of question that we can have as a country, um, whether or not the, what, what actions the president and his agents, Rudy Giuliani, engaged in. So, and then the way it could play out, I, I've thought about it on a, a number of different levels in the sense that Lev Parnas right now, who is indicted, is trying to cooperate with the Congress and there's something interesting there because the Congress could give him immunity from his indictment. And I would think, I mean, based on the calculation, I would actually say that the indictment, sorry, the impeachment of the president, uh, the question of the impeachment of the president is such an important issue, none more graver for the country, it should take precedence over criminal accountability for certain individuals. And I'd be willing to wave away the idea that we'll ever prosecute Lev Parnas, and I would even say Rudy Giuliani, to get full cooperation and information over to Congress, including um, other, you know, Rudy Giuliani might not be the, and Lev Parnas might not be the best witnesses, <laughs> most reliable witnesses, but they probably have a lot of documentation and recordings of uh, their uh, activity. So I think that should take a much greater priority. It's not just about congressional investigations like Ali North versus prosecuting Ali North. It's something um, 
at an even greater level than that. Well, and I think that's a, a really interesting point. And, you know, although some people, David Axelrod, think it's going to go ABC and it's all going to be done, it, it, you know, that seems to me in some ways the least likely case because, you know, for example, Rudy Giuliani is in Ukraine right now. And if Rudy Giuliani's being Rudy Giuliani, he's probably committing crimes right now. And he's saying that he's doing it as the attorney for the president of the United States right now, which means that whatever we do in an impeachment hearing and set of articles that are drafted prior to December 20th of this year, it's going to be missing something. And that during the course of 2020, other things are going to come out. And of course, how the rest of this plays out is also going to have an effect on who's got an appetite for more. And if it, you know, lands with a thud and it looks like it works out to Trump's favor, you could have Democrats going, oh, no, let's not bring this up again. Impeachment didn't work. Uh, Or if it has some kind of an effect, they're going to say, no, no, let's move this forward. Uh, And so this, in some respects, seems likely to be chapter one. Uh, We've got to follow it week to week. We'll do that here, obviously. Hopefully, Frank, you'll be willing to come back and talk to us some more because the historical context is extremely valuable. We're very grateful that you joined us uh, for this episode. We encourage everybody to go out and uh, buy Frank's book, which puts this into a lot of context. Um, And uh, what's the exact full title of your book again, Frank? It's called High Crimes and Misdemeanors, A History of Impeachment for the Age of Trump. Sounds like exactly the book that everybody needs right now. So go out and buy that book. Uh, And Ryan and I will be back next week with whatever next week holds. It sounds like it holds um, evidence witnesses in the impeachment uh, hearings of the Judiciary Committee. Um, And so uh, we look forward to discussing that with all of you again here on Deep State Radio. And if you want more from Deep State Radio, you want to know the other things we're doing, go to the dsrnetwork.com. Uh, and uh, listen to other episodes or download uh, other content that we've created. And while you're there, it's Christmas time. Don't just become a member. Sign up other members of your family. Give the gift of the deep state to everybody in your family. Nothing could be more appropriate this year. Thank you very much, Frank. Thank you, Ryan. Bye-bye. <laughs>